Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning as we begin our time of studying the Word. God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. And today, it's going to be a fun time together as we get back into our study of godly sorrow and the fruit of repentance, which perhaps is the greatest example that we find of that definition here in the Word of God. Before we get going, though, I want to lead us in prayer. But before we do that, I want to just tell you a little bit about my prayer for you this week. The Lord's kind of just brought this to my heart, and I just continue to pray for you as we went through the week. It's been my continual prayer uh, from 2 Peter 3.17, which says, Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. As we watch the TV, as we get on uh, the internet and just kind of look at at the news that comes across, it's easy to be caught up in the panic of the world that's really driven uh, more than anything else by the fear of death. And that will move you, if you continue to allow it to play a part in your thinking process, move you from your, and the word is sterigmos, that's that word of steadfastness. And the Greek noun indicates that's called a place of safety. And that's an interesting thing to think about. If, if we live even in the most basic of understandings of our salvation, then we know we're no longer uh, governed and controlled by the fear of death. And it should not be a driving factor in our decision-making. And for us, the Apostle Paul has made it clear in 2 Corinthians 5.8 to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So from that perspective... The worst that could happen would be the best that could happen. And not only that, but my prayer for you in this issue is that your understanding that you don't control the future and never have been in control of it, even in the days of normal, what we would consider normal times, and in these days of unprincipled men getting a lot of airtime, getting a lot of ink, like our governor who claims to be acting in the defense of life but really embraces a policy of death, my prayer for you really is to have that discernment to know that you're not to be carried away by the speculation of unprincipled men about the unknown, because your position of safety really affords you a precious knowledge about God's disposition to you uh, and those who are called by his name. First John 4.16 tells us this, it says, we've come to know and we have believed the love which God has for us. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And, and because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is true, then, and we, we rest really in this perfect love, then we can sing the same song that God's people sang during Isaiah's time in Isaiah 26.3. The steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. What does it mean then it, what does the mind that dwells in safety do? Then that's our corresponding word from the Hebrew. Trust in the Lord, right? And, and then the second part of my prayer for you this week, as you keep your mind from being shaken from your place of safety and not dwelling really in the fear of death and of the unknown, but instead, verse 18 says, but grow, so don't be shaken in, from your place of safety, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And perhaps you have found yourself with a lot of extra time. 
Maybe you have noticed that because you're not running around everywhere that you find that uh, you have some time uh, of your own that you have some dis discretion with. My, my prayer for you this week has been that you use that extra time you have on your hands to grow, first of all, in the grace of Jesus. What's that mean? Well, that's the characteristics of his gracious interaction with us, and let those become the characteristics of his followers. The way that he interacts, the appreciation of the grace that gave us salvation, and that appreciation of that grace in which we stand each day will give way to thankfulness. So my prayer for you this week has been that you grow in the grace of Jesus, and also that you grow in the knowledge of Jesus. That's that second part. His attributes, his commands, his priorities, that those become very familiar to you. And so uh, these things may be true in increasing measure for you, and that you can uh, have the wisdom to apply them in your own circumstances. And beloved, no matter what happens, because we don't know, and we don't have control of the future, nor have we ever, and no matter what happens, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7, tells us then whatever comes along, be anxious for nothing. It's a very clear statement from the Apostle Paul. Uh, don't worry about anything. But in everything, so it just takes in a very wide swath, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Beloved, that might be a minute-by-minute minute interaction for you. And I would encourage you to increase your time in prayer as, you've, as your anxiousness becomes uh, more apparent, as you perhaps read too many articles and now you're worried, that you take that worry and you give it to the Lord, everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Tell those requests to God. He already knows them, but he's looking to develop that relationship with you that's much more close. And, you know, if, if nothing else comes from this besides our reliance on him and our time in the word and that we're not carried away from our place of steadfastness, then it'll be a time most beneficial for us for the rest of this life the Lord has given us on earth. I'd like to pray with you now, if you would, just bow wherever you are today. And let's just give the Lord these things as we turn back towards his word in a moment. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you today for an opportunity to be together with the church. The church was never this building or any other building around this world, but always was the hearts of your people. And so for that, we know it's not shaken and can never be shaken because you have, you have knit us together, Father, and you have called us your own and we belong to you, and you, your disposition towards us is love. And your call to us is when we're anxious to come to you and give them to these things that worry us to you. And that uh, the benefit of that is that the peace that you have, you give to us, which surpasses, the scripture says, all understanding on our part. We'll have peace that is not commensurate with perhaps the level of panic the world may have. Much greater surpasses all of our comprehension, much greater than perhaps as we look around what we think we might need to feel, you're going to give us your peace as we bring these things to you and that guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And that's really what we pray today. And Father, we pray for all those who are out and about today, those who uh, perhaps are sick. I pray that you will raise them up, Lord. I pray for those who uh, are taking care of their children and guiding uh, the family at home now instead of sending them off to school, that you'll give them wisdom and 
and bless them, encourage them, give them understanding on how to connect. I pray for all the children, the students that are now finding their, their life very, very close around them, that they might uh, do these types of things we've been talking about to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to grow in their understanding, uh, and, and to not be anxious, uh, to be encouraging through social media, to, to reach out to other people, to be about uh, being salt and light. And Lord, these things are things that we can all develop. Uh, Lord, that they'll learn to be satisfied, uh, that this is a time in our nation where uh, really unprecedented in the modern age, uh, certainly in the life spans of all those who are experiencing it now. And so, Lord, I pray that it'll be a time of, of refreshing for them and encouraging. And Lord, I pray uh, that most of all, that your church, through whatever circumstances may uh, be, uh, be setting it, will be salt and light and encouragement, a time where the gospel goes out more powerfully perhaps than it has gone out in the ages past. That your people, each of them, will understand their own great commission to share the gospel, to spread the good news of Christ to every person inside their sphere of influence, Father, and that you might provide us a great fruit from that effort and prayer and commitment. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, whom we love and long to see, help us to be found faithful when he comes. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to pick up uh, and just read a little bit from verse 9 and get our, uh, get our bearings again as we really much desire to uh, get back into our regular study. It's been a few weeks since we've been here, so we'll do some review as is our, as our uh, normal process and then get into some new stuff. But I think that you're going to be blessed by our time together as you see these things that are unfolding here in our passage. We're going to pick up in verse 9. We're going to read through verse 16. So you can read in your copy along with me if you would. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, Now I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Verse 11, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So, verse 12, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Verse 13. For this reason, we have been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his heart, his spirit, had been refreshed by you all. For, verse 14, if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Verse 15, his affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Verse 16, I rejoice that everything I have confidence in everything I have confidence in you. Let's stop right there. And what we're doing today, as you know, if you've been with us, is referencing a letter 
Paul had to write that he called a sorrowful letter. And it's a letter he penned and no doubt labored over the word selection, and he did it, 2 Corinthians 2.4 says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Now, we don't have this letter in our Bibles, and you know this, but from the clues we have from our passage, we have a pretty good idea that it contains some strong confrontive words. And if you've been in the ministry for any length of time or have done ministry uh, amongst your church for any length of time, you know that sometimes ministry requires words like these. Sin crouches at the door. Uh, False teachers are everywhere. Satan seeks to destroy the work of God. Uh, People choose to willingly sin and bring that into the fellowship. And these are sometimes uh, times for very strong words. And these words are meant to produce obedience, which can only come about when there is repentance, which can only come about when there is sorrow over sin. And so, though he had not written just to make them sad, uh, sadness was the path to repentance, and repentance the path to obedience, as we'll see later in the passage. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 9, referring to the severe letter, the Apostle Paul says, For to this end also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, between these two passages, we see Paul's intent. And it helps us to understand what must have been uh, some of his word choice. He was concerned about their obedience, and it really overshadowed his concern for their sorrow. He didn't really want them to wallow in sorrow, but he really didn't want them to walk around in disobedience either. And apparently, the word choice led to fruit. And the last time we were together, we saw four more principles of spiritual response from faithful ministry. And if you missed any of that, uh, you can hook up with that on Spotify at the official Berean Journey podcast or online at bereanjourney.org. But just to kind of catch you up from where we were last time, and it's our habit, let's review for a moment. Paul says in verse 8, he says, um, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, he knew the letter he had sent was very harsh. Uh, It was very confrontational. It was very severe. And he knew it would strongly confront their sin. He knew it could produce sorrow. He made them take a hard look. Really, that's what he wanted to do, to take a very hard look at what they were really doing. And we saw that last time as principle number eight in the course of faithful ministry. If you're doing it right, you're going to need to confront sin, and that's going to cause some sorrow among those who you minister to. And that should not surprise you. Uh, The purpose was not, though, his purpose was not to make them sad. Uh, He wasn't kind of manipulating them in some way to create an emotional response. Uh, it was to cause something to happen, and sadness is really a part of that. He wanted them to read the words and really evaluate where they were. And then he says, I know it affected you in this way, and he says, I do not regret it. And, and the reason he doesn't regret it is because of what it produced. And Paul goes on to say, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. And we saw that during the time period when he's waiting for Titus to come back, and he's feeling anxious, and he's feeling worried and depressed, and, and, he, and it says he has no rest for his spirit and no rest for his flesh, which we looked at all of that in previous verses. During that time, then, this passage that we just read tells us that he had some emotional remorse about having written it because he was afraid it might have pushed them further away. And that's what he appears to mean when he says, though I did regret it. This was principle number nine. In the course of faithful ministry, you will need to confront sin, and that's going to cause you some feelings of doubt when you get done doing that, if you're doing it with the right heart. And what I mean by that is this is, I think, a very important note, because when you're dealing with people who need to be confronted, you're always 
uh, going to feel this, some guilt feelings or some regret. You think after you've finished confronting the sin, perhaps you do it by writing, you, perhaps you do it face-to-face, maybe over the phone or by text or something, and you get all done and, and you're thinking, man, maybe I pushed too hard. Uh, maybe they couldn't receive it. Maybe the effect is going to be that it's just going to drive this person away. And, and this is likely the reason why Paul says what he says. Sometimes when you're put in a place where, for the sake of the church or for the sake of the individual, and certainly for their impact on the church, you are in a confrontational situation. And, and the time, at the time, you know, you're thinking about the immorality, you're thinking about the sin, you're, you're thinking about what's going on in their lives, and you want to take a hard look at what that is, and you're confronting that issue with the individual or with individuals, and this is a difficult affair for ministers to manage. And so, so these are hard things, and sometimes you, you have to do this, and you put it all out there in the strongest way that you can, and then later on, you walk away, and you say to yourself, you know, I wonder if I was lacking in compassion. Or, or grace, or maybe it was too much, maybe it was too firm, uh, it was too strong. I hope, I hope I didn't push them in the wrong direction. And, and so we see Paul struggle with this very same thing, at second-guessing himself. And, and that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. That really shows that you're not taking joy in the confrontation. That's not something you're running to, but it's something that you know you have to do, and then when you're all done with it, you're hoping that it was received in the spirit that you intended and as you keep it biblical and you, you just kind of center on the issues and then you point out where you want them to take a hard look at where they are and where the, wor- the word of God would have them be, then you just go from there. But you may go from there feeling very uncertain about whether you did it right. And that just really shows a heart of compassion. You want it so badly for them uh, to get it. You want it so badly for them that they don't fall into a place where they're going to be chastened by the Lord or, or they won't understand the gospel and not receive it. it it's just, there's just so much writing on it that there's going to be some emotion involved. So that's not unusual. And then we see uh, Titus reported something else to him, and, and Paul can say, for I see, he says, that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. And that indicates a real compassion, see? And, and, and when he saw the results, he didn't have any regrets. And, and that's what we see explained in verse 9, uh, where Paul is relaying his take on his conversation with Titus when he says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. And the reason why he felt regret no longer is that the grief caused by the letter was only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, he says, but because you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. And, and this is so important, and this was principle 10, revealing really Paul's faithful ministry, even doing the hard things like confronting sin, which caused him no end of worry and no end of regret. You know that spiritual people are responding, mark this, in a spiritual manner when it includes a sadness that leads to repentance. That's really where you want to be. I rejoice because, and this is first in your notes if you printed them off, because you were grieved into repenting. The grief they experienced was not a useless remorse without any corresponding action to rectify the the, uh, situation. And we went over the background for the word repentance, the noun, metanoia, last time, so we won't go through all of that again. But the word means a change of mind, and here in its context, regarding sin. And mark this, beloved, it's one thing and you, I'm sure, experienced this. It's one thing to restore a relationship with someone. It's, it's another thing to see your unfaithfulness and your backbiting and all of the things that you did or whatever it contributed as sinful. And that you have to address before God. And that's part of it. See? I mean, that's part of real restoration. A recognition that the hostility and the enmity and the betrayal and the disrespect and the gospel was, was sinful. See, that's repentance. That's a change of mind. See, that's a change in the thought process that is around those actions. And certainly with regard to Paul and the Corinthians, what they did was indeed sinful. 
how they treated Paul, the things they said about him, and can some continue to say. But the principle, I think, crosses over. So whether you're talking about a friendship or a marriage or a family, yes, there can be a restoration on a human level and a reconstructing of a faithful love, but there also has to be sorrow that leads to repentance. Mark this, if, if it's going to be genuine and if it's going to last. And, and we saw that Paul, Paul really gold plates this response, if you will, that Titus reported to him, and he really makes it the standard for us. And, it, and this, this passage could easily be marked, this passage and the ones that follow, could easily be marked as the best or at least tied for the best explanation of repentance in the Word of God. And, and he starts by clearly marking out two ways of responding to sorrow over sin. He says, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Discipline that makes sorrowful under repentance, then, is how God wants us to respond. Paul said the hard things, and they responded in the right kind of sorrow, and it led to repentance. Now, it was not the sorrow of selfish sympathy, you know, poor me, here I am again, you know, the self-pity. It's not the sorrow of getting caught in your sin, see, and then you're embarrassed that everybody knows and you don't want everyone to know because there can be a sorrow connected with that. It's not the sorrow of despair, oh, I'll never get this right, I can never fix this, see. It's not the sorrow of bitterness, you know, these church people won't let me alone, I can't be here, see. It wasn't the sorrow of injured pride. You know, I know better than this. You know, I, I shouldn't have done it. I'm, I've been a Christian longer than you have. I know better. You know, it's not the sorrow of, of often expressed in, in manipulative remorse. In other words, well, you're at fault too. You know, I'm sorry, but you need to be sorry. See? Um, because those kinds of sorrows leave God out of the whole thing. And those kinds of sorrows lead to death, according to this passage. So this was the real thing. It was the sorrow of a change in how they thought about the whole thing. It was the sorrow of turning around and going in the other direction. See, So no defensiveness, no victim mentality, no self-defense, no resentment, no regret. I, you know, I miss my old life, right, never wanting to go back. See, uh, Just sorrow under repentance, the real deal, the real transformation, the real change. And then verse 10 says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And we saw that this is the kind of sorrow God wants you to have. See, It's consistent with God's will for you, the very kind of sorrow God intended them to feel. Now, it was that healing, that transforming, uplifting sorrow over sin that, that has God at the core of it. See, Because it produces repentance. The sin is confronted, the person responds with sorrow, that's full of admission of sin, and that sorrow leads to repentance. Now, why was that so comforting to Paul? Well, at the end of verse 9, let's pick that up, and we kind of go back and catch this, but it's comforting to Paul to see this happen. Now, he, he suffered through all that anxiety as he's waiting. He's, he's unsettled. He has no rest for his spirit, for his flesh, and he, he doesn't know if he was too hard. He doesn't know what's going to happen when Titus delivers the letter, how the church is going to respond, and all of that. And then he says this, he says, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Well, what's he saying? Well, that was principle number 11 for faithful ministry and spiritual responses. And it's always a check on integrity, see. The faithful minister wants to be able to affirm that he does what he does so that those in his care come to no harm. 
The reason why you as a minister of, the rec- uh, of reconciliation, the reason why you as an ambassador for Christ that we see earlier in the passage, the reason why those who minister to the church, to the congregation, the reason they do the things that they do is so that those in their care come to no harm. That's the underlying desire, to see them come to no harm and to see them come to repentancy. Now, how could they come to harm? By Paul doing nothing. By a brother or sister in Christ, watching another brother and sister in Christ in open sin and saying and doing nothing. By not pursuing their holiness, they could come to loss. See, By not confronting their sin, which is far easier. It's far easier not to say anything. And by, by not saying anything, by not doing those kinds of things, see, they would miss out on the blessings of God. Uh, they could lose their reward, the victorious life in Christ, certainly, the fruit of the Great Commission, uh, the honor of being an ambassador of Christ, uh, and a minister of reconciliation. They lose, they could suffer loss in those things. Indeed, they would have suffered much loss in their testimony, and, and we saw which can even harm the way uh, how the world views God, because a worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance and a continued sin leads to further chastening for the believer and, and the life of the individual is a wreck. And then the world looks at on and says, man, why would I want to be a Christian? Look at your life, it's a mess. And there are people who are believers who really, they exemplify that per- particular position over and over again, see? And so those who are around them who are not believers are looking at them and just saying, you're a, you're a believer and your life is messed up. It's just one thing after another, see? And so there's certainly loss there. Paul doesn't want them to come to harm. He doesn't want the gospel to come to harm. He doesn't want them to fall under uh, the chastening of the Lord. A loss of blessing and, and certainly loss in all of that. And the greatest loss of all, uh, the kind of sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance is a sorrow that leads to death. And for the unredeemed, that's eternal death. Uh, for the redeemed, perhaps the destruction of the body that the soul may be saved, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, or of someone who continued in sin after being warned. So, Tremendous loss, Paul's che- it's a really check on integrity. Why did I do what I did so that you wouldn't come to any harm, see? Now let's look at verse 11 and beyond as this godly sorrow really moves out into the other parts of their lives uh, beyond reconciliation with Paul. His first parts had to do with how they were interacting with Paul. But now it's going to move on out. And as an overview, these verses really illustrate for us what true godly repentance looks like. And I think that's why the verse, these verses by themselves are so important. Not that they give us, not just that they give us an understanding of what has gone on in the Corinthian church, but that they give us a very clear understanding of what true repentance looks like in the words that Paul uses to describe the impact this sorrow, this godly sorrow, had on the church. So Paul continues to report on what Titus told him about the ministry in Corinth, and he draws to their attention things that are very important very important spiritual responses. Look at verse 11 with me, if you would. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now stop right there. We won't get that far, obviously, but we'll get as far as we can. Now, The first part of the verse really gives us the overriding response. And what is it, beloved? You see it. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. So, godly sorrow that led to repentance produced, which is a compound verb, katargasato, kata, or after, or according to, and ergazumi, work or rot. So, after work. So the verb is eris, middle, indicative. Now, 
Paul is commenting on what Titus has told him, and, and there came a point when this godly sorrow they experienced produced as a general fruit, that's the aorist tense, it produced at some point along the way, it produced earnestness. And, and this is a word we've seen over and over again. The word's found 12 times in the New Testament. It's translated diligence five times. Haste twice and eagerness and busyness and care and those kinds of things one time each. But you get the gist, see? The idea is that when they were sorrowful to repentance, the first thing that changed was they were eager to do something, see? With the implication of a readiness to expend the energy and the effort to do it, see? Now, there appears to be I think this is really a general heading for the 12 things Paul illustrates that are indicative that true sorrow has led to repentance, has taken place. And earnestness is listed twice in our passage, so we'll use it as an indicator as well. That's our first principle, and it is this. Godly sorrow and the fruit of repentance, when it's there, when true repentance comes, there's an eagerness to correct the bad habits. That's the first indicator eagerness to correct the bad habits and obviously beloved as we've said many times you're not pulling this out of your hat somebody is not going to just pull this out of your hat the eagerness will come through the presence of the holy spirit who may now dwell in the heart of a new convert repentance that leads to salvation now the holy spirit's there and now there's power to do these kinds of things and an earnestness is generated by the holy spirit desiring that fellowship between the new believer and the father who has saved them or it may be that the Holy Spirit is no longer quenched and grieved by the sin of someone who has been a believer for some length of time and has now been confronted uh, by a sorrowful letter or a hard thing that has to be said. And, and it's not a situation where you have to, and, and catch this, you don't have to persuade them or pastor them. And, and you don't have to push and, and convince the person to, to do what's right. It's the most initial reaction of true repentance is to eagerly and aggressively pursue righteousness no matter what. See? And it's the first thing Paul lists. It's an eagerness to change those circumstances around all of this. And that's a per- I think that's perfect as an illustration of our passage this morning. And I believe that that eagerness is going to prove to be the main ingredient in all the under, other indicators. So you kind of read it as a silent partner to everything else. That earnestness kind of overshadows everything else. It's an earnestness to do everything. And I think we can understand from Paul's statement here that it has the primary position as he thinks over his experience with the gospel and the church. And the lessons of the first century church always have application in our time. So there should be a recognition then that these are common fruit shared by all who have experienced true repentance. Now, their repentance had real substance, really practical, visible, observable effects, and so does everyone else who's come to repentance. Now, the last verse, verse 11, lets us jump right in and begin to see this substance. So the passage goes, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Let's look at the first one. What vindication of yourselves. So an earnest vindication. What does it mean to vindicate yourself? Well, it's the Greek noun, apologia. Now that's a noun that we are very familiar with. Some of you have made uh, that word part of your career. Uh, But literally, it means to give an answer. Now, 
it's translated defense three times, answer three times, answer for oneself and, and clearing oneself once each. So when we read it, we may think, well, that doesn't seem to be a fruit of repentance. That's because we're used to people vindicating or justifying what they did or hoping to be proved right in a disagreement. That's how we use that word, or wanting to defend some unkind deed or some comment that they made. See, they, they being unkind to someone, and then they, they try to vindicate themselves by saying, well, they were unkind too, or they were whatever. That's what we think of in the English, but that's not the case here. So that kind of, that kind of vindication is not a true fruit of repentance. But here, Paul's intent from what has been reported to him from Titus is that he recognized that many in the church were earnest about clearing their names and their tarnished testimony. There was an earnestness immediately. And, and th- in this context, what it appears to mean is that they had this longing to clear the stigma that had been attached to them because of their sin. And that was number two. Uh, and as for godly sorrow and the fruit of true repentance, here's the second one. When true repentance comes, part of the fruit will be an earnest desire to make up for your wickedness and restores people's trust and confidence in you. Paul said they had an earnest desire to vindicate. And that really applies to the Corinthians, who are believers and had been taken captive by their own disobedience, and they were eager to clear their names by their new actions. And it applies to unredeemed as they come to faith. There will be a sincere and eager desire to put away all worldly lusts and sinful practices and wickedness that dominated their lives before, of which they are now ashamed. See, they changed their mind about it, and they want to please the Lord. And this is very important, see? And you, you won't have to cajole them to do it, see? And, and that earnestness to be different and, and show that their change will dominate the new life. You have an eagerness to show you've turned around. You're going to be in a different direction. You're pursuing righteousness and the kingdom of heaven now. And mark this, you want it known as far and as wide as your sin was known. This is a fruit of repentance, see. It's part and parcel of repentance. And then this, he says, what indignation. And again, our modern use of the word betrays our misunderstanding of the fruit of true repentance. You know, we're we're not indignant because we got caught in our sin, see. And then you're embarrassed that everybody knows and you don't want everybody to know. Or you're not indignant because of bitterness. You know, I hate people think of me this way, an injured pride type of indignation. And so you don't want to continue to fellowship amongst believers who know that you did what you did, see. It's not the indignance of, well, you're at fault too. Part of this is your fault. I mean, you're blaming me, but some of it's yours. It is the noun anagtasis. And in verb form, it's to be displeased or angry with an action. And here, it's namely their own. Uh, We often associate this word with holy anger. And that's principle number three for godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is the fruit of true repentance. When true repentance comes, beloved, part of the fruit will be an anger at the shame you have brought on yourselves. And and you'll think back over what you did. See, this is how this is all going to work out. If this is true sorrow that leads to repentance, you're going to have this indignation. You're thinking back over what you did or how you were. And there's going to be a feeling of hatred over how you were deceived. And that really helps to really galvanize your resolve to not return to the old ways. See, you see clearly now, and it's a righteous anger, and it infuriates you on how gullible you were. And we see this a lot in testimonies. As you have 
had the opportunity to lead people to Christ, as they grow in discipleship, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear them say, you know, I can't believe I used to believe that. I, I can't believe I used to do that. I am so ashamed and angry that I caused so much sorrow and, and to others and shame to myself in my arrogant disregard of God's word and his plan for me. This is, this is part of the fruit of repentance. And, and that applies to the Corinthians who are believers and had been taken captive by their own disobedience, and they were eager to embrace the right emotion about their formal life. See. And beloved, that kind of statement is an indication of real repentance. And then we'll, we'll get to this next one, and with this we're going to close out our study time for today. And it is this. It's what fear. What fear. That's the word phobos. It's a word we've seen many times before. It is where we get our word phobia. It root has the meaning of flight. So the, the actual literal meaning of the word is to run uh, because you're scared. And running from something which scares you caused by the intimidation of adversaries, if you will, something that's coming that you can't manage, something that you're worried about. But here, as in other places, it's used to refer to reverential fear of God. And part of uh, part and parcel, I think, as much as any other component, part of true repentance is going to be this controlling motive for everything you do in life in all matters, this reverential fear of God. Not just fear of his power and his righteous retribution, his ability to, to punish you or whatever. And that certainly is part of the fabric of it and perhaps part of the underlying foundation of our relationship with God. But a wholesome dread of displeasing him. See? And I think that you can understand this pretty clearly. Part of the fruit of repentance has got to be this change of mind about how you think about God and what he thinks about you. We know that this is, this is a fear which banishes the terror that shrinks from his presence. So as we looked at earlier this morning, we understand that perfect fear drives out, that perfect uh, love drives out fear. Eventually, we get to the point where we're obeying the Lord because we love him and fear is not coming into play. But when you first come to repentance, whether it's a believer who's walking, who's been walking errantly for a long time and someone has confronted them and they finally come to the understanding and been delivered by this, uh, being captured by their own disobedience, or it's, a, it's someone who's a new convert and they remember what they used to think and what they used to do and they're, they're angry about this and they're, and they're also now have this change of heart about God. They used to think, oh, well, God's going to be fine with me. I've done enough good things and just have this really friendly relationship with God or whatever uh, may be the philosophy of the life or there isn't a God. Or, and then they come to faith and they realize how wrong they were and this whole change occurs in their thinking as they think about God and they think about uh, his, his righteous retribution and, and a holy dread of displeasing him because they know he's real now and the light's been turned on and now everything's new and they're looking around and thinking, I can't believe I used to think this way. I, I can't believe that I used to be so wicked and I really want to restore people's faith in me if you're a believer and you've been doing these things that you shouldn't have been doing. Uh, this is how people think and now I don't want them to think this anymore and I want to show by the actions the Holy Spirit is prompting me to do that things are changed in my life. See? But this Phobos is very important. It's illustrated well, I think, for, for us in 1 Peter 1.17. It says, as Peter talks to his readers, he says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, and we know that that's the case, conduct yourselves in fear during this time of your stay on earth. That's a holy reverence. You understand that God is actively involved in your life. 
as, as much as he's involved in the creation of all things and running all things and holding all things together by the power of his word, there's a person, uh, there's a very personable and a very important intimate relationship that you have with the Lord, and you have become aware of that now to a very great degree. So when we think about the word in our passage, we get really the same understanding. Perhaps for the first time, they had reverence towards God who's been so gravely offended at what they've been doing with Paul. And that's certainly our context. And that is principle number four as we think about godly sorrow and the true fruit of repentance. When true repentance comes, beloved, part of the fruit will be a holy dread, a, a humble reverence for God who's been so grievously offended by the sin that was committed. And that's going to make its way as you grow in your relationship with him to a love that casts out fear, to an understanding that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that is a joyous journey to be on. But the beginning of that journey in repentance, the true fruit of repentance, is going to be this holy dread. But now as you move through that journey, it's disrespect turned into respect. It's going to be an arrogant disregard for God and his law and an open flaunting of God's forbearance if you're a believer, that God somehow, he's just going to overlook this. Or even if you're an unbeliever, I don't care about what God thinks, and, and you just impose on God's forbearance, and you provoke God, and he's long-suffering, and you realize that, see. And there's this disrespect turned to respect in the fragrant sin that marked your life, and, and, and it has turned into a wholesome dread of displeasing him. A fear that a holy God was dishonored. See, that's how you feel now, right? If you're walking with the Lord and you do something that's disobedient to Him or somehow you don't represent Him well, isn't, isn't that how you feel? As we've said many times, sometimes at the end of the day, the only person who knows you're a believer is you. No matter who you interacted with, you didn't interact well, and you, and you get home and you just think, you know, oh my word, I've dishonored the Lord the entire day. And then you just spend some time just getting right with the Lord. But for someone who's just come to faith or someone who's walked apart from the Lord for a long time, it's a new reality of fear of the one who chastens and judges. And that will change the way you worship. It's going to change the way you pray. It's going to change the way you confess the sins of your life. You've changed your mind about your sin. And part of the fruit of that is visible in how you view God and you'll be eager to embrace that new perspective. See? And I really think this passage which we have really barely tapped this morning, perhaps provides the clearest understanding of what true repentance looks like. And it's going to start with an eagerness to correct bad habits. When true repentance has come, there's an eagerness to correct bad habits, which includes an earnest desire to make up for your wickedness and really restore people's trust and their confidence in you. And the fruit will manifest in an anger at the shame you've brought on yourself and on the name of Christ. And a holy dread and a humble reverence then will flood in for God who has so, been so grievously offended by the sin that was committed. And it will obviously take us some time to get through these, these words, perhaps one more time together in this passage. But when we're done, Lord willing, it should provide us with an understanding of repentance and discernment to identify it both in our own lives and in the lives of those we minister to. I'd like you to bow with me in prayer as we close out our time together. If you would, allow the Lord to speak to you through his word and continue to work as you understand these passages. Father, as always, the 
lessons of the first century church have application in our time. So there is the recognition that uh, these are common fruit that all who have experienced true repentance share. Father, we know that their repentance had real substance, practical, visible, observable effects. And so does everyone else who has come to repentance. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, as he's really summing up his ministry, as he's prepared to go to Jerusalem, and we know all the things that happened after that, he said that he went along preaching repentance towards God and faith in Christ. It wasn't some marginal doctrine repentance. It was a change of mind which gave way to change of action that is the fruit of that repentance, and we pray that for all who hear this message now. Repentance towards God and faith towards Christ. When you embrace those things, you've come to faith. Repenting of your actions, confessing those things to him, faith towards Christ's work on the cross that completely bore all of your sin. Salvation can come to your house. And Father, I pray that you'll do that work. And Lord, as we think about the context too for those who are redeemed, as we have the obligation, really the responsibility of those around us that they not come to harm so that we are emboldened as much as we can by your Holy Spirit to say the hard things sometimes we need to say. Father, we trust that you'll work a work of true repentance in the hearts of those that we can interact with. We don't want them to come to loss. We desire more than anything for them to know the blessings of walking with you, the blessings of a life that is submitted to you. And so, Father, I pray that you'll continue to do that work. Help us to be moved to do the things we need to do, that we might then someday stand in the throng of heaven knowing that we've done all that we could do, snatching some even from the fires, Jude says by the words that we say because we love them so much. There's so much so much to bear here. And so, Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together even by distance. Get the hearts of the church together, Father. Give them a, a renewed encouragement to be in your word, grow in the grace of knowledge of Jesus, to not be moved away from our steadfastness, to embrace our great commission, think about the needs of others and minister to them. Father, these things are things you measure. These are the things that you think are valuable. And I pray, Father, they will be manifested more and more in the hearts of all who call on your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.